Okay, now we're going to come to the heart of why we're here, which is the Lord's Word. And today we are reading from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 20. And this is uh, the last of our series on the Lord's Prayer. And uh, this is Ephesians, which Paul is part of Paul's letter to the Ephesians when he was imprisoned in Rome in AD 60. He wrote this letter to encourage people. And this is part of that. And this particular part is entitled The Armour of God. So let's read from the Lord's Word now. And it says this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggles is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual evil, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armour of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit which is the word of God. And pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me whenever I speak. Words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Father, we thank you for your word to us. And we ask that your blessing be upon Nick as he comes to open it up to each of us. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Thanks, Kevin. When we started this series, I, started, I was reading a little book called um, Your Kingdom Come. Uh, by a guy called Gerald Bray. He's, uh, he's a fairly well-known um, theologian, and it was subtitled The Systematic Theology of the Lord's Prayer. And the suggestion of the author being that uh, the Lord's Prayer takes us into all the important aspects of Christian devotion. And I guess when we started, I wasn't entirely convinced by that thesis. But he also said that at the time of the Reformation, the Apostles' Creed was the summary of doctrine, the Ten Commandments was the summary of discipline, and the Lord's Prayer was the summary of, of, of devotion. We don't use the Apostles' Creed very much. We could do, but we have a statement of faith. Um, and that's on the website. And we come back to that kind of half terms. We come back to that uh, fairly, fairly uh, often. Lord's Commandments are the summary of discipline. The Lord's Prayer is the summary of devotion, kind of crowning the other two. And again, I, I guess I wasn't entirely sure that the Lord's Prayer was, was up to this job that he claimed it was going to do, that it was going to 
um, give us uh, the heart of, of what it means to, to be a, a Christian in, in devotion, um, and it was going to give us some systematic theology. But I guess my mind has been changed, actually. The more we pray it, um, the more I have prayed it, um, it seems to me that Jesus' words uh, ring in the back of my mind, as I hope they're ringing in your this, then, is how you should pray. That's Jesus, that's not me, saying to you, this, then, is how you should pray. And I do pray and hope that you're hearing Jesus' words and you're doing something about it. Uh, you may have been an ACTS prayer, somebody using ACTS, that's fine. If you want to carry on, that's fine. But if you're not using a pattern for prayer, then I call on you now and I will call on you again at the end to do something about it. Because Jesus says to you, this then is, is how you should pray. So please don't sit there this morning and look at me um, and go away and not do this. Because then what is the point? of me bringing uh, uh, the words of Christ. It's the word of Christ to you. It cannot be any more clearer. Um, this, then, is how you should pray. I don't know why I'm getting angry about that, but I am. Um, there you go. Maybe I've just had a strange week. Maybe I've had a strange breakfast. Um, actually, I haven't had any breakfast at all. That's what it is. But there you go. <clears throat> it gets me fired up. This is Jesus. This is Jesus talking to you. We should be fired up about that, shouldn't we? So the same author says that it involves the Trinity. And I guess I wasn't kind of convinced when I read this uh, at the beginning, but given that his other things have been proving true in my experience, maybe I should believe this too. Um, it talks about our Father in heaven. Our Father. Uh, he is the one in heaven and it is, and it is he whose name we, we want to hallow. We pray for his kingdom is come. And of course the king is King Jesus. Pray for the kingdom of Jesus to, to, to come on earth. We want his will to be done. And out of that kingdom, within his kingdom, Jesus provides daily needs for, for his people. And in, within that kingdom, there needs to be the giving and receiving of forgiveness. That's at the heart of that kingdom. And now we pray that we will not be led into temptation, that we'll be delivered from evil. But rather we'll grow in, in goodness, practical holiness, we'll be sanctified by the power of the Holy Spirit. I think that's probably convincing, but you'll see that uh, as we go on and as you practice the Lord's Prayer. Two important words then for us to kind of get to grips with as we look um, at these, this last verse of the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. <clears throat> so the first important word is this word parasmos, which means temptation, or it can mean testing, or it can mean trial. And I think that's quite important for understanding this. Um, so when Jesus was tempted by Satan in the desert, um, this is the word that was used. Um, and actually, very interestingly, it does say, um, and I spotted this, we were listening to Matthew's Gospel in the car um, yesterday as we, as we travelled up to Worcester. Um, the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the desert to be pyrosmos, to be tempted, tried, tested by the devil. It's the same word. Very interestingly, it was the Holy Spirit um, who led him there. Um, 
I'm not going <clears> to <throat> make any more comment on that. But again, it's the same word when, Jesus, when James says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. So it's the same word there. Um, and actually, at that point, we read very clearly that testing or trials are a good thing. They're a good thing because they prove your faith. Faith. They test your faith. They give you perseverance in the faith. So longer-term testing, you know, testing is a, is, is a good thing. It's not fun, but it's productive. And I want to note, kind of in passing, that I think I've noted in the last few months that every time I've had a spiritual breakthrough, it then seems to get tested. So I had a spiritual breakthrough, and oh gosh, I see that about me, and I see that about God. And then it seems that God kind of like puts you in a situation where you have to apply it, have to apply what you've learned. Um, and so I think that's probably not uncommon, that when you've had a real spiritual breakthrough, um, you've understood something for the first time, or you've re-understood something, that God tests it, kind of puts you in a situation where you have to apply that. Um, so testing it is a good thing. Paneros means the, the or hop paneros, which hop means the, um, means the evil one, I think. And I th that's a change in, in the translation um, over the years, which I think is right. Uh, it means deliver us from the evil one. And he appears a little bit later in Matthew. Here we're in Matthew 6. In Matthew 13, it's the evil one who snatches the seed. Um, the gospel away from the people who hear. It's like the seed that falls on the, um, on the path and is eaten by the birds. It's the evil one snatches it away. That's the same word. So I think we're asking to be delivered from the evil one, but actually it, I don't think it makes all that much difference how you translate it because we're being asked to be delivered from um, the power of, of Satan's kingdom. But I want us to backtrack a little bit. Or I want us to put a little bit of background information in before we go any further. We've got those words. Um, lead us not into testing, temptation, trial, but deliver us from the evil one. But I want us to understand, I want us to think this morning about how, how temptation works. I think this is really uh, an important subject. And John, if we go to 1 John, it's a really good, um, it's really good background reading. I think, for how temptation works and how there are two kingdoms in the world around us today. That John describes very clearly um, two different kingdoms um, at work. So the first, so in 1 John 4, he says, you, dear children, he's talking to Christians, are from God and you've overcome them. And he's referring back to false prophets who are speaking by uh, the spirit of the Antichrist. Because you've overcome them, these false preachers, because the one who is in you is greater than he, than the one who is in the world. They're from the world, they speak from the viewpoint of the world. The world listens to them. We're from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. So a very clear statement there that there are kind of two kingdoms. It's the kingdom of the world and there's the kingdom, kingdom of God. And in the kingdom of God, every, that's everyone who trusts Christ with salvation. And everyone who's born uh, again of the Holy Spirit, he that is in you, this is so important, and that is the Holy Spirit, is greater than he who is in the world. And that is Satan. 
And later on, John says, just to compare this, he says, we know that anyone born of God doesn't continue to sin. The one who was born of God, who's that? One who's born of God? Jesus, thank you. Um, Keeps them safe. And the evil one cannot harm them. Yeah, the one who's born of God keeps them safe. And the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. So you get this picture, this kingdom of God. We're born again. The one who is in us is the Holy Spirit. There is the world. And for John, that means the non-Christian world. That's everybody else. And Satan is in them or he is in the world. He is amongst them and he is in control outside the church. That's a uh, biblical view. But Satan is just a fallen angel. Okay, I guess he's a fallen archangel. And he is in the world. He cannot be everywhere at once. He is not omnipresent. That's really important. Um, Later on, we're told that he goes about roaming around, um, looking for someone um, to devour. He's, He's not omnipresent. He cannot be everywhere at once. He has followers. He is followed by uh, multitudes, we don't know how many, of of fallen angels who have disobeyed God with him. And we call those demons. And he is, so Satan is in the world. But he's not in the world in the same sense that the Holy Spirit is in us. The Holy Spirit is literally um, in you this morning if you're born again of God. Satan is out there somewhere. But he's not out there everywhere because he can't be. His minions are out there and we don't know how many of them there are, but they are out there. So he is in the world, but he's not, out, he's not in the world in the sense that he is individually um, controlling everybody who is out there because he cannot do that. But he has this world under control because they're blinded. They're blinded by him and his agents. Yes, they are at work in the world out there. He's called in Ephesians 2, the spirit who is now at work amongst those who are disobedient. But he must be delegating most of the time because he's not omnipresent. And the one that is in you this morning, the Holy Spirit is greater, 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 so much greater than he who is in the world. Not least because he's the one who is in you is the spirit of God. He is omnipresent. He is uh, uh, all-powerful, omnipotent. Satan is not. And notice that uh, even if that was all that John would said, he says more than that. He says the one that's born of God, Jesus, keeps his people safe. So the question then is, reading the Bible about Satan attacking, how does Satan attackers well most of the time he personally doesn't he cannot because he can't be in our different houses as we go home later in the week um, he can't be with Ian at the same time he's with me 
at, at the same time he, he's with Dorian. He does not have that power. That's really important. To, we're going to bring him down a, a peg or two um, this morning. It's really important. He does delegate. <coughs> so if there is an, uh, some evil at uh, work around you, the chances are, really, actually, it's not safe. Could be one of his minions. The other thing we need to say is that I don't believe that Satan puts thoughts in our heads. So I was reading Systematic Theology this week, like um, all you good boys should do. Um, and Grudem says, we shouldn't think that demons can know the future or that they can read our minds or know our thoughts. There's no sense in scripture that Satan can read minds. One of my lecturers used to say, and I've told you this before, Satan has no direct access to the Christian mind. Satan can't read your mind. God can read your mind. Satan, I believe, I don't believe, can put thoughts in our heads. This too is really important. (coughs) Because what it means then is that temptation comes from two sources. And I think this is much more biblical than thinking that Satan could put thoughts in our minds. Temptation comes from inside comes from the inside comes from your own sinful nature comes the own remnants of your sinful nature James says when uh, when tempted no one should say God is tempting me well that's clear I don't think we would do for God cannot be tempted by evil nor does he tempt anyone but each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire unenticed so a temptation comes from inside so that's important Temptation comes from outside. And it's not Satan getting somehow through the wall of your head, putting thoughts in your mind. It's simply what it comes in through your eyes. And Jesus says this, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Do you get that picture? But if your eyes are unhealthy, in other words, it's not that you've got bad eyesight. It's that you're, doing, you're looking on unhealthy things with your eyes. Then your whole body will be full of darkness. It's really clear, isn't it? That what you're looking at affects what is happening on the inside. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? So temptation is coming from inside you and it's coming from outside you, but it's not from Satan into your mind. It's the stuff that you look at. And John says it very similarly. He says, don't love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in them. So you're out there in the world. He says, don't love it. Everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, in other words, the stuff that comes up from the inside, um, which the the lust of the eyes, the stuff you look on and you really want, and the pride of life, it it comes not from the Father, it comes from the world. In other words, most of the time, the temptation you're getting is stuff out there is, is resonating with stuff in here, and, and then you're doing it, putting it into practice. So actually, doesn't that make you realize how, how critical then is it what you do with your eyes? Because most of the time, it's what's, it's what's out there. It's the, stuff, it's the stuff that you look at. And I'm not saying that you're, you, you know, that you're hunting down 
porn on the internet, though you might be. It's just might be stuff that you, you, you see on the news or the, or the programs you watch as entertainment. Or it might be the people around you that are provoking or they're stirring up, resonating with the sin inside you. So most of the time, Satan is not attacking you. What is actually going on is you wrestling with your own sinful nature provoked um, by, by the world around you. So Satan attacks you indirectly. Indirectly. Except. Because he can't do any more than that. He can't do any more than, than, than arrange an indirect attack to you unless the Lord gives him permission. And we see Satan going um, to the Lord. You can read Job 1. Um, and see him going to the Lord and asking for permission to afflict Job and to afflict his body. But before he can afflict his body, Satan has to go to the Lord and ask for permission. Or in Luke 22, um, Jesus says to, uh, to Simon Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. This is one of those little comments we run past, isn't it, most of the time. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fall. And when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. Satan has asked in that instance to, to sift them, to test those disciples. So Satan can go no further without the Lord's permission. So how do we defend ourselves? Well, I think the first thing then is to recognize that growth, our growth is a process, not a crisis. Um, we love a crisis, but by crisis, I mean something that happens suddenly. We want God to come in, please, Lord, come in, and bang, kind of, you know, give me 20% more holiness today. Um, most of the time. I mean, it's lovely that the Lord gives us moments where he reveals himself to us and we grow. Um, but most of the time, it, it's, a, it's a process. Because the response then to this temptation that is coming from out there and it's prompting whatever is in here, um, it's not rebuking demons for our thoughts. It's just Holy Spirit-inspired and fortified self-control. So Grudem again, he says, if we think of the overall emphasis of the New Testament epistles, you realize that very little space is given to discussing demonic activity in the lives of believers or methods to resist and oppose such activity. The emphasis is on telling believers not to sin, but to live lives of righteousness. So what I mean by Holy Spirit directed and Holy Spirit empowered self-control is this. The Holy Spirit, as you read the scriptures, prompts you about a, a, a specific issue. And then you take up whatever promises of, of scripture are, are appropriate um, to, uh, that God will strengthen you and, and God will be with you. And you go into that behavior next time around, trying to change it, trusting in his strength. And as you get it right, each time you get it right, I think what happens is the spirit changes your heart and you get heart change so that you no longer want to do the thing that you've been doing. So our defense, if the attack that we're getting is actually this indirect attack that's coming from out there, it's resonating in here, our, our defense is to um, control our thought lives, take captive every thought, make it obedient to Christ. It's to control what you see 
So what's coming to your eyes so that it doesn't provoke you. And then it's exercising self-control. What's one of the fruit of the Spirit? I think it's the key fruit of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. Spirit of power, love, and self-control, isn't he? So that's primarily how we defend. But I want us to go back and just think about what I've called the awkward text. It's probably not the best, that's probably not the best title for them. But there are, there are some texts which, what do we do then about this, um, what do we do then about these places where it seems, the Bible seems to talk about Satan attacking us. Or we say in the hymn, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. What do we, what do, we do then um, with those kind of texts if, it's, if because he's not omnipresent it can't be? Satan directly. So here's one of them. Um, this is, don't deprive each other, this is about sex, don't depri- in married couples, don't deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I think what's happening in some of these texts is is that Paul and other writers using Satan as, as, a, kind of, um, as a kind of shorthand for the, for the kingdom of darkness. Um, the way sometimes we talk about Westminster for government, talk about London for England or, or Paris for France, sometimes even in speech we use, we use the head of something to refer to the whole. I'm sure there's some technical grammatical word for that, but I don't know what it is. So I think that's what, what's happening. So... It might be for any given couple on, on any given day um, that, that it is Satan, but it can't be, can't be in, in, in general. So um, Paul's using Satan, I, I think, to mean um, the kingdom of darkness in, in general. So he doesn't want couples to deprive each other of sex because then they're going to be tempted. They're either going to be tempted by stuff they see and they're going to have sex on their own or they're going to be tempted by somebody else and they're going to, you know, temptation to have sex with somebody else. Here's another one. In your, in your anger, don't sin. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry and don't give the devil a foothold. So here's an interesting text because it, it sounds like, oh my goodness, um, I, I've, I, I haven't got rid of my anger and, and the devil's got into me. Uh, well, he hasn't. He's not entered your life. But he has got into your obedience. So if you want to think of your total obedience to Christ as, as a kind of place or a, or a field, uh, a battlefield, uh, maybe, that, then what you've done, if your, behave, if your total, totality of your behavior uh, is a space, what you've done is you've given Satan a little bit of that space. It's not come into your life. He's not possessed you. You've just given, you've seeded a bit of the ground of your obedience to, to Christ. And the problem with that is, once you've, um, once you've given him a little bit of ground, um, chances are you, you're going you're gonna to not defend the next bit of ground quite so avidly. So you, by giving the devil a foothold, what he means is you've just given him a start in, in, um, in, in the totality of your obedience. You've kind of opened up an area of weakness. And I think Paul puts it in this term so you can see what's at stake. And this is what is at stake. He's not exaggerating. So we would say, I, I, didn't, get, I didn't deal with my anger um, before the sun went down last night. I kind of just decided to stay angry. 
um, overnight. And you could say in the morning, I've got a bit of an anger problem, or I'm a bit slow, um, or I'm a bit unforgiving. And Paul doesn't say you've got a bit of an anger problem. He says you've given a little bit of your life over to Satan's cause. And that kind of sounds like a bit of a bigger deal, doesn't it? Yeah. And if you haven't seen that you've given a bit of your life, um, which you knew about and you should have dealt with over to Satan's cause, then what next are you going to miss? Some more awkward texts. They all come at once. That's frustrating. There we go. It's really interesting. Haven't written a bit of sermon for this. There you go. Haven't written it down. A couple more awkward texts. Um, James 4 says, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil uh, and he will flee from you. Come near to God and, and he will come, come near to you. So it sounds like resist the devil. Whoa, it sounds like he's, it sounds like, um, he's coming to your face. Uh, and you're having a, a, a face-to-face encounter. But if you go and read the context, it's actually the context is about friendship with the world. It's about conforming. Um, and so what you're actually being asked to resist is the pull of the world. So actually that's back to where we were before, isn't it? We're not resisting the devil because suddenly he's come in front of us and we're going, get, get away. Um, Satan, he, he might do and you might have to do that, but it's unlikely. So don't get me wrong. I'm not saying he's not there. But actually, when you, there's a pull and you're out there at, at work and, or you're in the pub and somebody says, well, you want another drink? And you think, actually, no, um, that's, that's one too many. And you just the pull is that you want to conform. That's Satan, in a sense. It's not actually Satan because he's not there. But it is the pull of Satan's kingdom on you. And you need to resist. Another one, um, 1 Peter 5, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He does. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family believers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. The context, the context is persecution. So he's saying probably to Christians in the Roman Empire, uh, Satan, through his minions, is inspiring people to take you prisoner. Uh, even put you in the arena later on, and, and how, do you, how, do you, how do you resist? Or you see other people being imprisoned, to resist is, is to withstand the urge to, to give up your faith. So you resist the devil by refusing um, to give up your, your faith, your confidence in Christ. How do we do that? I haven't really got time to go into Ephesians 6 and the armour of God, so this will be the quickest teaching on the, the armour of God you ever had. This is not something mystical, this is something really practical. We, we fight the esoteric, so Paul says we fight um, against rulers, authorities, powers uh, of the dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. We fight the esoteric, what do we fight them with? We fight them with the mundane. And put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. Okay, when, the, when there's persecution and when you press, it said, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. You have truth, you have the Bible. Um, you're girded uh, with Bible truth. So believe it, stand on it, act truthfully. 
He says, you have the breastplate of righteousness in faith. Um, you are made righteousness in, in Christ. And the way you wear that is to believe it and then to go and, go and practice it. Go and be a godly, holy purple. That's a person. That's how you stand your ground. Your feet are fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. You, you have the gospel. You have believed the gospel. Uh, you stand firm by being always ready um, to share the gospel. I think Paul kind of mixes his metaphors here. I think if you try to find six coherent things, I, I think you push it too hard. Um, because he says, in addition to this, take up the shield of faith. I think it means, it seems to me to mean lift up. Lift up the shield of faith. In other words, um, faith... Uh, and what does he say? Faith extinguishes all the flaming arrows of, of the evil one. So we've said already that those flaming arrows um, it, it is the temptation. It's coming to you um, primarily through your eyes. It's not coming through thoughts. Um, faith picks up, lifts up um, the word of God. Um, so we can use the promises and we can use truth. Um, we, we lift up um, our salvation. Lift up the righteousness that we, that we have in Christ. Um, we lift up the gospel and we hold it. There between us and between what we see going on around us. And we have the, the word of God. But interestingly, that's um, take the settlement of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Interestingly, Paul doesn't use logos, which is, uh, he uses rima, which is kind of like more the spoken word. It would imply, therefore, you have the word of God, but you have the ability to speak um, the word of God to one another. So when you stand, stand your ground, you, you use these defenses. You have the Bible, you trust, you have the gospel, you have righteousness in Christ, you have salvation, uh, you lift them up by faith and they provide a shield. That's for standing firm. And prayer, prayer is fighting back. Prayer is our offensive weapon. Um, pray in the spirit on all occasions, pray for me that I may speak boldly. So what are we praying then, coming back to where we started? It's a long way around, isn't it? Please, God, don't put us through testing. Lead us not into temptation. Why do we, why do we pray not to be led into temptation when we've said that testing, testing and trial is a good thing? Well, because when God tests us, Satan tries to get in. There's always a risk. Risk factor in testing that we fall again. Testing is unpleasant. It's a bit like being uh, the 1 Timothy 2, the prayer to live quiet and, and godly lives in all peacefulness and holiness. We don't want the authorities to be uh, actively against us. Testing is hard, it's unpleasant. Another thing is we should know that we're really prone to falling. And sometimes when you're having one of those weeks where you kind of, it seems to be all testing or it seems all trial, then sometimes I go to the Lord and say, can I have a space? Can you take this away from me for a bit? I'm just kind of falling down all the time here. And this is really hard. Can I have a space? Can you leave me beside quiet waters for a while um, to restore my soul? And God graciously, sometimes, um, says yes to that. Why do we then pray, please deliver us from the evil one? What are we praying? We're saying if we're tempted, please, please rescue us. We're praying, don't give God permission to harm us, please. Sorry, don't give Satan. Please, God, don't give Satan mission to harm us and we're praying help us 
see our lives and behavior in, in the context of this bigger battle between the two kingdoms. See, I think if you pray, again, if you pray this, this will be transformative. Deliver us from evil. Praying that week by week by day by day, you'll start to realize you, you're in a battle. And sin will take on a different character. Help you take ground rather than give it up. So is all the Christian life here? Jesus says to you, Jesus says to you, all essential prayer is here. Jesus says to you, make it your pattern. Make it your pattern, please. This then. Jesus says to you, this then is how you should pray. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Lord Jesus, you're calling us to take responsibility. Take responsibility for our own lives. Take responsibility for areas where we, we keep thinking we're tempted, but we're not really doing anything about it. Just blaming Satan and not taking responsibility. And Lord Jesus, you're calling us um, into battle. Take the things we do seriously. Only soldiers wear armor, only soldiers need armor. Help us, Lord Jesus, stand firm. We want to please you, we want to fight for you, we want to fight with you, we want your kingdom to come. So just lay on our hearts this week, we pray the dangerous prayer. Uh, Lord Jesus, just uh, expose to us our sin, expose to us um, the places you want, to, you want to change in us. We can only pray that because we know that your, your yoke is easy, easy and your burden is light. It's actually better and easier to be holy than it is to be sinful. Sin seems easy, but it's a, it's a yoke that suddenly can't find, we can't break. Lord, where we're in those places, Lord Jesus, please break that yoke and put your yoke on us. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you.